0: If you're not already a subscriber to the London Review of Books, now is the perfect time to try. Sign up for just £5 a month and treat yourself to some of the world's best writing from Europe's leading magazine of culture and ideas. Subscribe now while you're listening to this podcast at lrb.me forward slash now. That's lrb.me forward slash now. Say hello
1: to a new era of mental health care.
0: Welcome to the London Review Bookshop. I'm not going to say very much, I just want to welcome you all on behalf of the London Review Bookshop, where we are delighted to have Eileen Miles back again to read, this time from their new memoir, Afterglow, which is actually written by Eileen, also written by Eileen's dog, Uh who also was responsible for a large part of your poetry in the 90s, according...
2: Exactly, yeah. yeah.
0: We, yeah, we're thrilled to have Eileen back. I want to thank Grove Press and the Serpentine Gallery as well for making tonight possible, and most of all Eileen. Join me in welcoming Eileen Miles. Welcome. Thank you. Thank
2: you. Thank, you. Uh, thank you. So, well, thank you so much for coming. It's great to be here. Um, I don't know. For some, I'm very nervous for some reason. Uh, so I think I'm going to read. Um, a couple of poems, and then I'll and then I'll um, pet into the dog, memoir. So these poems, I have a book of poems coming out next coming out next year called um, "Evolution," a very intimate title. And these are from them. And this this one is called "Transmission." I'm overcome by the cruelty of nature. No, I, I mean I'm with it. And each little capacity it has can't be transferred. I mean. A spruce can't give its oils to you, can it? But that's how it grows in the absence of technology. My thoughts grow. My thoughts grow among trees, but I don't help them. I'm for them. I'm for my dog, and incidentally, I feed her, but I don't see her much. Joe does. Joe is my friend and also a dog father. I don't help mountains. Mountains help me. I know the planet is old and splashy. Sleep helps me. Time helps me. My mother helped me, and now she is gone. She also hurt me, so it's good that she's gone. I can grow different in the day or three decades in which I've got left. I can grow towards the mountains, sit in solidarity with prisoners, or go to jail. I'm not joking. I can push different. I want to say something about my cunt. Oh, this is like a total London reference, because um, well, I, it's like a real British with cunt. You know, it's like a total different thing, right? About you know American cunt and British, but um, but I think the, I think the. Um, the uh, The guardian asked me, they were doing like women writing about sexuality. Will you do it? And I was like, I'm always asked to do that. And so I wrote I wrote something about why I wouldn't do it. And then she said, Oh thank you, and didn't print it. (laughs) I thought this is so that's what this is about. I wanna say something about my cunt, because that's what you ask. But I am alone. No mother, no phone, just a notebook and a cunt and my thoughts. I don't even think my thoughts. You do. Was that last line unsuccessful? (laughs) I thought it was I don't even think my thoughts. You do. It was good. Come on. It was like, um, because of the political situation in America, which is like a nightmare, um, poets keep getting asked to, like, do you have a political poem? And I was like, I don't have a political poem. And you like turn and you have like a political poem. So this is a recent political poem. It's, it's, and, and also, when um, Man on the High Castle came out, you know, that show, I was like, why would I want to watch a show about Nazis? And then when, you, when I understood that it was about resistance and also, you know, things changed, I was like, of course I would want to watch a show about Nazis. So, The Vow. Everything's like a shade of brightness and dark, like this new pad I got, or my computer or these doorways opening one to the next, which is where I began. Nothing is like my dog eating an apple core in bed. The sleeping bag is red. It's March, and it's already warm. I don't want you stepping on my computer, which is where all my friends are, some of whom are Nazis. I never thought I'd call Nazis friends, but I spend at least an an hour a night with these ones. And then I wake up and read about the real ones on Twitter. For days, Rebecca Solnit and I struggled to be Facebook friends. It was like we were going to the gym together. We worked it out. I was visiting her today, looking at her face. The heat just rumbled. It's not even evening, but I thought I'd get a little Nazi in early. I would die for my country if that included everything my friends and my dogs and all the lakes and ponds. I am ready for the struggle. Another great ending. Oh, come on. I was just like, incredible. Um, and this one is really recent, and it's called Mary Queen of Scots. And all you need I have, a, I have a living dog in my life right now, a dog named Honey. And Honey, while I was on this trip, um, bit a dog named Butters in the head. And, <laughs> Like luckily, Butter's um, owner was a vet, so she was like, "It's cool." But like, she spent like a night in the hospital, and it, it was like1,200 dollars cool. It was really cool. Um, so there's a lot of eating, and he has a lot of animals being eaten and almost eating each other. and The whale's breaking the surface of the ocean, no other name. Then I knew that I became ocean, too. The black and white mother knows her baby becomes knives, she misses the restaurant, and honey runs out and takes a bite of butter's head. The owner is nice, that forest in Scotland whipping by. Yes, I think this country should become free. Solaris is the interior of my sexual fantasies, I'm part plant eaten by movies for years. The veal of snow curves as she drags her pile of trash on the train. This is any butter, the lightly screaming train, and I'm excited to see you. Black barns hold my contentment, Dana Ward and Mary Gonzalez and those small tubby rolls in the grass, are relevant yellower grass, it's hay, hedge ends the property, my this is not struck by the gun of a moment, but this tumbling green, long unseen, tiny recollections, exchanging thwang, the release of a bow, honey safe and butter safe, the crown of a tree, see-through, poking over a hill, and I want my hands on the font, I want, I want. That's for poetry. (laughs) Um, um, So, I think you'd probably. uh, So, there was a living dog named Rosie, and then she died. And then, so, I I, a big, uh, maybe about um, a quarter of this book is about the living dog. And then, um, and then I had to keep making shit up basically. Um, but then I had footage of the living dog, too. And so I kind of transcribed the footage. So then it's like the living dog is sort of walking through the book. But one thing about the living dog is that when I got her, I looked into her eyes and I was like, it is to- totally my father. And my dad was this guy who was great and died at f- in his 40s of alcoholism. And um, and he totally would come back to be my pit bull and, and be together for X number of years. So that's in here. And, um, and I guess I'm just going to... So I'm going to read like... The very beginning of the book and then I'm going to read a little bit of the living, dying dog and then, it, then I'm going to go someplace more fantastic, I think. One day in 1999, an awkward hand-addressed letter appeared in my hallway. The mailman threw everything on the stairs. I grabbed the letter and headed with Rosie, maybe this, I feel like a comedian, this is like a sort of a stand-up comedian <laughs> pose. Um, on record albums in the 60s, I think. Um, The mailman threw everything on the stairs. I grabbed the letter and headed with Rosie to the dog run, which in that neighborhood was a skimpy little triangle at 39th Street, west of 9th Ave. It was an amazing perspective on midtown roofs and also dull traffic heading to New Jersey. My neighbors were weird, sad former actors. I liked the pink-cheeked older woman named Doris who walked every one of the neighborhood's dogs, including mine this is like 16 years ago so Doris is probably dead sitting on a bench while Rosie sniffed the ground I tore open the strange note it read dear Eileen I take the liberty of calling you Eileen to begin the unpleasant duty of forcing you to legally take responsibility for the damages you have inflicted over a period of nine years upon the being you have taken to calling Rosie I am Rosie's lawyer dog lawyers have only become possible in recent years even months which is not to say that crimes of all kinds against dogs are new in any way. Crimes against dogs are ancient and widespread but dogs having the wherewithal to attain legal representation is new indeed. My services have been retained thanks to a generous bequest by an anonymous donor who set up a foundation in her will for the explicit purpose of identifying dogs who were likely litigants, candidates for beginning the long and arduous process of getting the ball rolling on dogs' rights. It's been clear to my client during her life and most pressingly at the time of her death that the best way to make this need known would be to take up an individual dog's case, not the case of all dogs, which is too ubiquitous to pursue in the explicit way the law makes possible for human litigants who are generally assumed to be individuals. A wealthy individual, of course, does not have more rights than a poor one. We are all brought up to honor human rights, but only wealthy humans are able to use the full force of the law i.e. obtain high-quality representation. By this logic, there can be no freedom for dogs unless there are wealthy dogs. There is one today, the dog formerly known as Rosie. She has been left a significant sum of money in my client's will. She may spend it as she pleases with the single stipulation that she obtain counsel and press charges against her owner for a variety of abuses and crimes against dog kind. As you know, Eileen Miles, that honor is you. It seemed unbelievable to me. Rosie was about 10. I looked at her licking an empty wrapper against the fence. She appeared entirely innocent of the the letter's content. What? Are we already going home, she seemed to say. Okay. I don't think she knows anything about this. (laughs) I popped the leash back on and walked home, planning my day. The loft we lived in was right across from Port Authority. Day and night, I watched the lights of buses sail in and out of the building. I thought about the letter from time to time, I mean for years. I showed it to people. They laughed and smiled. Could Rosie and my entire relationship be framed as blame? I did force her to have sex with Buster that one time. No, twice. Could I write a book about that? I've never been an idea writer. I have like a spurt and then I go do something else. But this would be her book. A dog book is a great idea. So that's the beginning. <coughs> and now. Um, This chapter is called My Dog, My God, which is like core. I mean, I just take the dog god joke and just run with it feverishly for like 200 pages. (laughs) Um, People said, you'll know when I asked them how they knew it was time, when it was okay to take your dog's life. You'll know, they said, looking me right in the eye, and I did. Rosie began dying in June, having those mysterious fits. At the end of each was a puddle of piss. I went to my meeting on Adams Ave in the evenings, and I talked about it, the one near the park with the working people, the beautiful dog walker, the pale, curly-haired man who taught law and came in covered in sweat, almost naked from running. One night, he and I stood on the sidewalk under those shady trees. He said, my name is Philip, lover of horses. He smiled. I thought he was flirting with me, but it was part of his euphoria. I understood, because I was the one with the dying dog. My friend, the older woman, said, you've got to stop. I was biting my fingers. My dog is dying, I kept saying it. I was biting my fingertips. My dog, I'm repeating myself. My dog is dying, I kept saying it. I wash her ass, and then I wash all the towels. One evening, I was feeling a little extra naked after describing the ritual of mopping her piss, and I thought, that's it, she's God. And I felt so calm, I found God now. My God, my dog, I chuckled. That's it, our room. This is ecstasy and everything got right. She's dying and I'm watching her. I'm not thinking about it. Not that that makes any difference. I got this intention, this understanding. Did anyone <coughs> ever say that suffering was about difference? It sops it all up. We are this picture of ourselves now, Rosie and I, and we want to be seen. I took such care of her when she was dying. I relished it. She made me go slow. I'd hear the rustling of her limbs, and I'd run to her because she couldn't get up, and there was generally a puddle already there. In my house, I have beautiful wooden floors. Now I had a pile of face cloths, torn towels, rags. I'd mop up her urine with a clean, dry towel, and then I'd come back, and I'd wash her ass. I'd come back with a damp one, wash it again, and then I'd wipe her dry. I made sure she was really comfortable. I'd do it with love. I attended my dog's ass, the collapse of her rear legs that I saw as (coughs) little high heels. I imagined her a drag queen or a young girl unsteadily teetering, a touching failure. I swooped in and made it better, made it comfortable. I felt loving. I felt like a god too. I felt less ambivalently loving (coughs) than I've ever felt in my life. Now I know what love feels like. I do it and I think it. I love feeling this. Love loving your doggy ass. My home became a shrine. The bird of paradise around the door, the late night and early morning dog barking in the dark canyon beyond the yard. When I bought the house, it said on the deed, Disclosures, Dogs in Canyon. What could that mean? Hundreds and hundreds of dogs barking day and night. Not all the time, just when any one of them got an idea, then they all got it. There's a growly picture of me standing in the screened-in porch light flooding in over that canyon and I look like an animal. But the animal looks great. You see a movie sometimes in which someone is doing something really difficult, waging war, defending their family, walking very far and very long, and they look terrific. They look great. The hair looks good. The person looks well. They look hot. And I would watch these spectacles with a doubleness. I'd keep watching, because unless a movie is really bad, I'm usually enthralled. But I always think no one would look so good doing that. But in fact, people often look radiant suffering. How often have you told someone they look fabulous, and they say, thanks, because I feel terrible? And you can see it right behind their eyes. Terrible puts a candle in there. Terrible turns on a light. You wonder if people are just, are just empty when they're moving forward with the plan, when it's all on the outside and the world is full of light. But when you suffer, the light is in. It's all yours. So I'm going to leave the dog suffering at that point, and we're going to go into another uh, total other zone. Um, because I started, so, like, so my dad, the dog, the dog was my dad, and that was just a fact. And so I, I, went, to, um, I went to this artist colony, McDow- McDowell, and I, and I thought, just do it then. like, Just explain how the dog is the dad, and, and so on. And, and I had at various points in time when I would, um, mostly when I would try and stop drinking, I would start reading all these theosophical texts and this kind of spiritual stuff and try and you know, incarnate as somebody else. And... Um, and it's always it's always like curious to me like where all that strange reading goes, you know? And so when I when I decided to explain how my dad and my dog were the same being, I just unleashed all this theosophy and it was just became clear that like, you know, there were fish and fish wanted to write poetry and they grew legs and they came out of the water and they came onto the earth and became dogs. And it was so fun to write. And I thought this is amazing. So I I read it at McDowell because they, you know, at artist colonies they sort of force you to like do this kind of show and tell thing. And so then people were like, so is Rosie going to speak? And I just thought that's so corny and I'm just like the dog's going to speak. But then I I thought about it and I was like under what conditions would she speak? And then, uh, so I realized that I have these like childhood puppets that I made, you know, like in after-school programs and I still have them and, and I've been thinking for a while what to do with the puppets. So I was like if the puppets had a talk show and invited the dog on, you know, surely she would talk. So this chapter is called The Puppet's Talk Show. Um, Oscar, the host, is a puppet. He has shiny black painted hair and bright red dots on both his cheeks. He's wearing a pair of blue overalls with very baggy suspenders and a blue and yellow striped shirt. One of his feet is gone, and his pant leg is empty. Oscar, hello, 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 hello. Our guest tonight, Rosie, a dog, is here to set the record straight. All puppets, yay. Oscar, yes, Rosie is our guest. Thanks for coming, Rose. Rosie nods. Glad to be here, Oscar. Very glad, in fact. Rosie leans forward a bit in her chair, adjusting her butt. Oscar, puppets and dogs. A lot of folks probably can't see the connection between our kinds. I say balderdash. All puppets drumming. This is like a puppet drum circle. It's a huge. <laughs> Oscar, our studio audience, the kids. Camera pans to the kids. Just to the left of Oscar and Rosie is a short row of puppets. Bedelia, who has black yarn hair. Montgomery, a young guy with painted reddish hair. Casper, a ghost. Little more than a white clown head and a sheet. And finally, Crocky the crocodile. A pair of papier-mâché jaws going clack clack and a lower body of red and green upholstery material. Behind them are hundreds and thousands of puppets going back endlessly into the horizon, which becomes mountains and hills also covered with puppets, all the puppets in the world. Rosie turns and returns to Oscar smiling. Wow. Oscar, yeah, there's a lot of us. The meeting of puppets and dogs has been a long time coming, and you can see how important it is to our kind. Puppet nation. No, puppet universe. Rosie, I hope I can do my kind justice. I mean, there's only one of me, and there's a lot of dogs. Oscar, what do, what do dogs want, Rosie? I don't mean to put you on the spot, but you agreed to come in today, and you can see what your being here means to us. And I hope you don't mind me being honest. You guys have generally cons- been considered the enemy for good reason. Dogs historically have torn a good many puppets apart, tore us to shreds. Camera close up on Oscar's face, and a tiny tear is dripping down. Rosie, I get it, Oscar. A lot of wrong has been done, but those do Oscar bows his head and then lifts a white hand. Oscar, those were ordinary dogs, Rosie? Is that what you were going to say? Oscar looks over at his wife Bedelia and all the puppets up in the hills. He regains his composure. Rosie, I think I would feel more comfortable on the floor. She hops down and plants her head on her paws, looking innocent. Oscar, forget it, forget it. You came here to talk with us and it's time to move on. Dogs are pawns and puppets are pawns. Let's face it, puppets are puppets. People put their hands inside us. They enter our heads and our bodies and make us say things whether we believe them or not. Rosie, over her shoulder. People have us on leashes. People feed us on the floor. They put us to sleep. People put us down. Oscar, right and that doesn't happen to us. But now that you're animated, we've got a lot more in common. All it takes to see things fresh is the right opportunity. A good invite. Oscar looks around proudly to be on our show. Rosie hops back on chair. And how many dogs get this, Oscar? How many dogs are called? I'm grateful I was called. I always was. I guess that's why I'm here. Oscar, what was it like? Rosie, what was what like? Oscar, I don't know how to put it. The fame. I mean, you're definitely getting famous right now. You've been written about, like Lady Di. You're basically being deified, flips through the page of a gallery, nodding, as well as being defiled. Rosie, no great shakes, Oscar. Big dog, little dog, all the same. Humans are the problem. I think you'll agree. Oscar, nodding, hmm. All puppets, a murmuring begins with Oscar's low hum and cascades all the way back up the mountain like a growly bill or a quake. Oscar, you just touched the rock, my friend. Rosie, the one I had rode me like a car. She was interested in how she abused me. She wrote about it. She wrote about it extensively. I mean, that's why I'm here, right? When I died, she described the ways my body was treated. Paw pushed in plaster like a criminal or a child. They made a Rosie souvenir before they threw me in the fire. Then, and only then, and oh yeah, when I was dying. Get this, when they're wheeling me around town like a man who has money. Then she writes on her long legal pad, puppet, puppetry. She gets the idea that I was used, treated like I was empty. Great. Yeah, well, how about my whole long life, Eileen? Oscar, that was your name for her? Rosie, no, it was not. I called her Jethro. (laughs) That was my name for her. And believe me, I got in more than one fight defending that name. I tell a few other dogs in the park, ugh, here comes Jethro. When she's loping towards me with her big smile and a rope like it's good news, I've got to go home for hours and sit on the floor. Yet I had a certain amount of loyalty. The dogs in the park got snickering and telling all the other dogs, Look, look, Jethro. I wasn't down for that shit, laughing at her. That's part of why dogs, dogs in captivity, but that's pretty much all dogs, we're known for our loyalty. We stay with the hand we're dealt, and we generally will fight for it. Dogs do have choices. Unless, unlike you guys, we can move on our own, and some dogs totally do. Go to Mexico, for instance, and live your own life. That you can also fucking starve on those streets. But yeah, there's a lot of us down there. I guess anything's better than getting gassed as a pup. But my point was, I was very often defending her and getting myself in fights in the dog run for years. And did she have any idea? First, she tries to get me knocked up, had me raped. And that is in the book, to her credit. Later, she decides, no, that's not what I want. And then she has my insides yanked out. Puppets look aghast, all puppets. Rosie, you didn't know about that spaying? Oscar, they take your copy thing away. Isn't that it? Rosie, still, do you want more dogs? Isn't that the argument alleviating dog suffering? Rosie, yes, we want more dogs. Do you want more puppets? Rosie turns and looks up the mountain and beyond. We want to outnumber humans and turn it around, not in a warlike fashion, but gentle, you know. We're doing it from the inside out already. That's what this book means. We are talking to our masters, very gently and subtly. Dogs are true leaders and strong teachers, as the life of Eileen Miles after my own life will show. Life is short. That's the problem. It's very hard for one dog to do much in one lifetime. 16 years? By the time you hit your message, your body's failing. Oscar, so there's some truth? Rosie, truth to what eyebrow raise? Oscar, well, here's your book, Afterglow. It's right on my knee. And what I'm hearing from you now is that it's not so clear how much of the work here is yours. Oscar turns towards the camera, waving the book. Authorship, who's writing who? Puppets take the cue and start drumming. (laughs) Rosie, want the facts? Okay, here's the facts. My lawyer wrote Eileen Miles 10 years ago, and she did nothing. I was begging her for years, at least make us some money. The pages my lawyer wrote were brilliant. Can we throw them up on the screen? It's a little long. Oscar, we're in puppet time. Do puppets have time? All puppets, oh yeah. (laughs) Rolling up the mountain and the hills. Projected on a screen behind Oscar and Rosie is the following. Dear Eileen, puppet strumming, I take the liberty of calling you Eileen to begin the unpleasant duty of forcing you Rosie, off camera, Oscar, have you read this before? Oscar, letter or the book? Rosie, any of it. Oscar, I read the whole book. Nothing gets on the show I don't approve of. Rosie, OK, so I totally wrote the letter. Oscar, what are you saying? Rosie, there's no lawyer. There's no money. I, I never said it because it just kind of confuses things. I put it in her head. It's what we always did. She feels she wrote it. Oscar, god there's some legal issues to this she must hold on foundation and their will for Oscar we've got plenty of time she must know Rosie she knows you know how humans are particularly this one vague the stuff early on about the hand addressed envelope the hand addressed letter is fiction just covering her ass I don't know maybe she's trying to give credit to the post office but um Leans forward. I sent her something else, a dream. It's short. Can I send it to your phone? Oscar, now? Awkwardly pulls large cricket phone out of his overall pocket. Eileen's dream. At the party, I was talking to Peggy. Oscar, Peggy the dog, the one in Ireland? Rosie, no, that's later. It's Awish, the filmmaker. I was talking to Peggy, and she asked me how I'd been. You know, it's very lonely in California, but I'm doing what New Yorkers do out there. I'm working on myself. I mean, there's no people. There's people, but you don't see them. Everyone's in their houses. So you can't help seeing yourself. I went there with a girlfriend, you know, and in less than a year, she's up in LA fucking around. I wind up in a very large bed, a California king, they call it. Rosie, looks down at her own phone, smiling. I love that bed. Did you get to that part? Oscar, yeah, let me check on. The explicit purpose of identifying dogs who were likely litigants, candidates for beginning the long and arduous process of getting the ball rolling on dogs' rights. It's been clear to my client during her life, Oscar, we're still okay. Eileen continued. One night as I was falling asleep, which had been very fitful that winter, trying to get myself adjusted to sleeping alone in a giant bed inside an empty house, I began seeing a slow fading slideshow of the faces of all the women I had ever been involved with. Each of them was looking at me with love in their faces, and as I laid there in my giant bed, I found it hard to believe that that had been my life, that anyone had ever looked at me that way. It was a painful, lonely feeling, and then I fell asleep. I woke up anxiously in the blue of morning. I looked out the window at the blue eucalyptus trees and felt the stab of anxiety and realized I must get up. I jumped out of the bed and went into the front room, which had a door, which looked through a tiny yard with a fence out onto other houses and a suburban street. At that moment, a light went on in the house across the street. It was the house of a large, depressed lesbian named Junie, who I had determined wanted me by the way she impulsively grabbed me once at a meeting. Oh, God, Junie's going to be awake now, I thought, as if by standing there looking out on the street, I was responsible. I stood in my doorway taking all of it in when suddenly I saw myself standing there, looking out as a toy, a wooden puppet with a pointed nose, nodding benignly, smiling, and looking out. Oscar lifts his head, smiling. That's very sweet. Rosie, I'm glad you think so. Humans will think it's creepy. (laughs) Oscar, humans never like thinking of themselves as puppets. Puts white-gloved hand on Rosie's paw. Your secret is safe with me. I think we're going live right now. There was one today, a dog formerly known as Rosie. She has been left a significant sum of money in my client's will. She may spend it as she pleases with the single stipulation that she obtained counsel and press charges against her owner for a variety of abuses and crimes against dog kind. As you know, Eileen Miles, that honor is you. Oscar, OK, that's the kind of history we like. He rocks a little bit, looking at all the other puppets. Rosie. Rosie Powerful document, I agree. And anyone with half a brain would have written a dog's desiderata on behalf of us, or even a serious defense of herself, and would be set. No, old Jethro shows it around a bit, like, look at the brilliant piece of writing, I don't know what to do with, and whoosh, slides the letter into her files. Maybe she publishes it in a student magazine. Years pass. I listen to her whining. Say hello to a new era
1: of mental health care. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life.
3: to find out if it's right for you.
2: ...and huffing. What's wrong with my life? Why can't anyone see I'm a genius? On and on. She took me to nature, to the sea, to the forest. She did her best when it coincided with what she considered her career. Puppets, what's that? Rosie, they put their hands inside you, don't they? Same idea. They use whatever they've chosen, law, sex, poetry, whatever they choose, They try to do that to the world, animate it. Put their hands inside the thing and shake it at the world, wanting everyone to go, whoa. That's pretty much how I understand a human career. And we are feathering their beds. So yes, I taught her to write. I showed her the way. Work changes in 1990 when I came on the scene. Check it out. She admits it, but people think she's being poetic, humble, theoretical. Cut to the end of our so-called story. I'm basically unable to walk to the door to say, I need to relieve myself. We're sitting on the green Chase lounge in the yard. And she's got the yellow legal pad out now. And she's writing to break your heart. Now, you fucking loser? Now? Yeah, now. The book is here, our book. And yes, I have helped mightily. Just as I wrote virtually every poem by Eileen Moss from 1990 to 2006. And she wrote nothing, nothing in the intervening months. No, years. A cat writes a poem? I don't think so. A cat does not have a poem. A cat, a cat stays in. It's a whole other kind of thing for them. I'm not really in touch with them yet. Oscar, cats? Rosie, yeah, cat. We picked a pretty doggy one. Ernie, black guy. He was wandering around wondering if this was the right place for him. We took him in, and I liked him very much. And the pair of them were devastated after my departure. But there's no poems in that. You know, the person you should talk to is Don Allen. Oscar, who's that? Rosie, she's a talker in betweener. Oscar, you mean? Rosie, yeah, she's a puppet. She's our puppet. She's practically a saint. People call her up, and for a very reasonable rate, she lets us speak. Eileen Miles waits for the end of my life to see what I was hanging around for. Was I her father? That's a very big part of this book about me. Humans are always looking for the obvious, very low, very base, very banal kinds of puppetry. They can't imagine their own animation ending. They decide that God's got his little paw in them, laughing. I know that sounds a little sleazy. Oscar, not to us. (laughs) Murmuring echoes up the mountains. Rosie, they decide their children will be their future puppets. They build institutions and write books to carry on their names. Quack, quack, quack. Everything will speak their names while they're alive, and especially when they are gone. The pathetic thing about humans is they think that everything is in their hands, and their hands are in or on everything. Pat, pat, rubbing behind the ears, looking in your eyes for years. Oscar, so you had your say. First in the book, through Don Allen, and now here. I would kill for that experience. Rosie, and you have in a lot of movies. (laughs) A doll coming alive, a puppet coming alive. The only things humans can imagine about puppets finally becoming free of them is that you guys all want to kill. And for good reason. Oscar, you said it, chief. Rosie, I told Don Allen what I loved. The grass in our yard, the sun on my fur. Jethro was thinking about moving again. In this conversation, I let him know very clearly that for me, it wouldn't be so good. Don asked if I would come along. And I used some language that anyone who came from the Miles family should have known meant no. We'll cross that bridge when we come to it. It was a joke. I was talking like Eileen Miles' mother so she would know in the deepest possible way what was going on. Oscar, and what did, did she take the hint? What did she do? Rosie, moved to Los Angeles, of course. She wound up sitting in an apartment in Koreatown writing my will. Thank you. Same old story. Most poets, most humans, for my money, if they have anything going on at all, will still prefer singing about it over truly being. I guess it was the best she could do. Poor old Jethro. First she killed her father, she killed the family parakeet, and then she killed me. Oscar, chilling. Does she know? Rosie, she's about to find out. We've written a book, this very sad book about trying to listen. A dog, even, or especially when our hearing's gone, we know what everything means. That the universe is deep. That it's not about what's inside of you. The inside is empty. All puppets nodding. It's the layered story that is true. That's what everything means to me. The world is waiting. It wants very much to tell you its facts. It wants to be seen. Once you touch everything and touch it well, then you can let go and go home. Puppets, you mean. Rosie, then you can sink into the pond and know everything. There's no God, there's no dog, just water. Everything is water, on and on. Oscar, ha, huh, I think that is a very nice place to close. So, any questions?
0: Uh, hi, really I'm glad you kicked it off with the puppet thing because that was my favorite part of the book. How oh, good? Um, and I was wondering if there was a sort of a form. <coughs> formal reason why you did it, or a kind of overarching metaphor, or some kind of insight into the process behind writing the the Oscar V. Rosie puppet show. Um, I just found it so entertaining, right? but right. at the same time, I mean, it's that mixture of funny and profound. Um, so yeah, just a bit more insight into...
2: I mean, I guess it was the... Tri- I mean, I think it was sort of like... The transition from there being an actual dog to there uh, being a dog who is purely mythic, there had to be a way that that happened. And so it just, I mean, I think that the, the fact that she was on this imaginary puppet show meant that she, she, that she literally animated. Like, I had, cr- I had created a device for creating a reality in which what was not true was true. And it seemed like once, once she was on a puppet show, anything could happen in the book. I felt like I've just gained total permission. You know, and and there was all these, you know, like, I think the thing that's so weird about writing a book is that you have these pieces that you can't figure out, like the part about the um, the lawyer, like I wrote that piece like in, in 1999, you know, it was just kind of like, like I just got this funny idea, like this one, one and a half page, not even, you know, not even a half page piece that was like a mystery because I wasn't, I really literally wasn't that writer, I thought there's no way I could write this kind of funny, ha-ha dog book of... Because I thought, what if I just make it be a court case between Rose and my dog? and Because the thing of living with a dog, especially in the city, is just horrible because you know you're torturing the dog. You know, this is sad creature in your apartment, and they're just angry at you for years, in a way. And and so it was just like, it was easy to think of her suing me, you know? But it wasn't easy to know what to do with that. And so the book kind of, the, the that document sort of lay fallow until when i wrote the puppet thing i thought of course it would be on the tv show you know so i put it in the tv show and then it sort of ruined the scene you know and so then i took it out and then it was like all you know the whole thing kept being like sort of like wet until i figured out oh it goes at the beginning of the book and it's you know and it's it's like it's it's dropped on in, in their hallway you know and um, so i mean like i don't know which came first the i mean i guess the the lawyer letter came first and then the, the other the puppet Talk show made a home for the lawyer to make this speech, even though it wasn't even in that chapter. So I don't know if that's a real answer, but. I don't know if it was a real question. so... <laughs> no, that was so good, yes. Yeah, so, I mean, I think the whole thing, I just like, I, I think one thing, one thing that I feel very happy about is that, like, I, in my other, like, novels, like, people are always like, like you use your own name how can this be a novel you know it's a memoir you know and i have never written a memoir i've only written novels so when i finally write a memoir there's so much fiction in it it's the most fictional book i've ever written so i feel like i'm still like blowing up a genre in my my way or whatever you know
1: um, i wondered if you could speak a little bit about the way that your writing has changed with the development of i guess like your mythos and pop culture as a literary icon and as a sex symbol <laughs> My and ethos now, of pop
2: culture. I don't know. I'm going to feel like I put a hat on or something like
1: that. You may. Yeah. I'll, you can have the hat. Um, and I wonder about the way that you're using a dog to perhaps tell your own story without you as the vehicle. It's and a huge. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Even if what you're writing before is nonfiction, it's interpreted as fiction because it closely mirrors what we presume to be you, or like builds up this figure. Right. Um, and I just, yeah, I'm curious about that and the way that that's maybe informed your writing or how it's informed this book
0: or this journey
2: trying to figure out what part of that question is the question. Um, I mean, you know what, I mean I did I had one thought though that I I mean I think I think my book was definitely a desire to get me off the stage, but then to put me in the, on the stage. Like I think I became fictional in a way, just as fictional as the dog. And I thought, I mean like one of the most brilliant moves I think in the history of literature is um, the autobiography of Alice B. Toklas. You know, it's like Gertrude Stein was like a struggling experiment. I mean, not struggling because she had like a trust fund or something. She wasn't exactly <laughs> poor, but like unknown and laughable, except she was, a, she, was kind of, she was kind of pop before she was known as a writer, right? I think maybe like, like the New Yorker and Vanity Fair would talk about life in Paris, and there was this laughable woman, you know, that wrote these silly things, but she knew all the painters and so on. And I think she had been sending her work to publishers in the states for years and getting the worst rejection slips I've met madam this is foolishness I have no idea what the content is and when she figured out this brilliant idea of having having her girlfriend write a book about her and what a genius she was you know she sort of beca- I mean she wrote a she wrote a, a, a legible book about her own brilliance you know and um and so I I mean I really thought I mean it's, it was so Warholian as a gesture to, to uh, you know, and and even Rimbaud, like kind of Rimbaudian Like the kind of I become other, you know, and then become conventional and then become successful, like all in, you know, like in a kind of a three-step plan. So I think that there was a way, I mean, like I think when I first wrote the dog letter, I thought this is the book that'll really make me money. This will be a pop book. This would be, you know, but of course I'm not a pop writer. I mean, I might be, I don't know what you said, a pop something, but um, I'm certainly not a popular writer. And so it was, you know, like it was a failed popular book. I mean, it could be wildly popular now. But I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't like kind of the book that, that will be in the airport, like, amazing dog book, you know? <laughs> but that was my intention. I always feel like I always start with some incredible idea that this is going to blow the world up, you know? And then it winds up, I still wind up being this writer. So it winds up being a weird book that, like, now it's puppets. Now it's, you know, um, there's like, mon- like not, only, um, not only is the dog my father, but there's a um, kind of a, kind of like, uh, like a, relig- a religious leader who was a contemporary of Jesus Christ named Mani. There was a heresy called monarchyism. And at some point, I realized that Rosie was also Mani. So there's a lot of, I mean, it's just, yeah, it, the book contains a lot of mystery. Um, did I answer your question? There was something about pop culture. I don't know if we got there. How did I do? Yeah, it's That's good. Right. OK, thank you. Yeah. Um, I love the Zen part, i like so relaxed. I'm... This corner is hot, that's a hot bed of questions. It's just...
0: Why did you buy Rosie? When did you buy Rosie? And why did you buy Rosie? And have you always had dogs?
2: That's I love the buy. I did buy, I did, indeed I did buy Rosie, but um, I, always, I always wanted a dog and I was really, it was just kind of like, day, do you have daylight savings in the UK? Okay, we all, have, it's global, right? But it was just like I think that I was going someplace on a Sunday, um, in the spring, in a spring that had a summer coming up that I had no plans for, and I was a little bit nervous about what this summer would be, and and it just and I think I was ready to change my life, and I didn't know how that was going to happen, and so I was walking towards this this meeting, and um, and I got there, and there was like this big metal gate, and there was like um, a chain on it, and it wasn't happening. And I thought, this is like one of the staples of my life, going to this place at five o'clock. And, and I was like, what's going on? And I realized it was daylight savings time, and it was in fact four o'clock. And I was like, oh my God, I've got an hour. you know. And that kind of, uh, you know, I'm sure you have, it. it's like, a, like an hour. It's like New York, I have an hour. I can do incredible amounts of, you know. And so I was just walking down the street thinking, I feel so free. I have no plan. This is, you know, and, and I even, you know, and then I looked, you know, like there was a, um, Contractor on my block, and and right in front of her shop, where there were usually guys hanging out and people. It was like this big white pit bull with spots, and she was nursing all these little pit bulls. And I was like, Ah, oh, this summer's going to be fine, you know, because this beauty and this strangeness. And, and I'm looking at these dogs, and then Rosie like caught my eye, you know. And it was just that thing of like, you know, who are, you know? And I was like, My God, look at that dog. And she had an intense gaze. This dog, it was it was one of her major qualities and so I asked them I was like what's the story with these dogs and when I said particularly that one and they said oh some guy just went home to get his money he's gonna um, get 50 bucks and he's gonna uh, take her and cut off I mean this was probably a total selling <laughs> she was, he's gonna cut off her ears and her tail and put her out to fight I was like what and so I went flying home and you know grabbed part of my rent money and came back and, and bought her and that was that was exactly how she came into my life so it felt like this kind of miracle act. And I always wanted a dog. And I was like 40 years old. I was suddenly, I could, I could handle a dog. Because i had failed in my 20s. I had been a, been a very bad dog parent. So what do you do, think dogs give
0: humans? Or what humans give dogs? I'm only asking this because I don't really get dogs. And I don't really understand. Right, right. Why people? I actually find well, why it like, do slightly have children?
2: Dark. <laughs> it was like explain that to me. I was like, I'm why like in my, my 60s. I just still don't get that one. People are like, oh, it's so hard, you know. And you were like, why did you do it? You know. Yeah, because it's a bit like. But when I was a kid, I mean, I definitely wanted a friend. We couldn't have a dog. We had cats, you know. But I always wanted a dog. I thought I was the middle child, and I felt like I needed something that would, you know bolster my position. Yeah, I guess I just think
0: that I might be missing out on something special because lots of people that I like, like dogs, but I just don't really get them. So I'm wondering if you think there's something that dogs give humans. They annex your life.
2: They annex, like if you quit smoking and you no longer stand in nature pointlessly, you know, or like have a feeling I'm going to go walk on the beach with a cigarette, you know, it's like the dog will do that. You know, the dog, it's just kind of like, you know, like it's just the dog, it's like a joke I have, but it's really true that when I, um, like I finished my book Chelsea Girls in the country, because I had these friends who were wealthy artists who decided I was like their pet poet, you know. But somehow that only happened because I wanted Rosie to have puppies. And so I thought, this is the summer, she'll have puppies, it'll be great, we need to be in the country. And so I wrangled this situation and we had a summer in the country. Then I needed a car because I couldn't get her to the, so the whole, my whole life expanded incredibly because of this dog's needs. You know, and now I have, I have another dog, Honey, I, and I have a house in Marfa, Texas, and, um, and she, I mean, like the whole dog distinction for me is there are dogs that you look in their eyes and you're like, like, Rosie, people felt Rosie saw them. You know, I walked down the street with this dog and people were like, look at that dog. And what they meant was, look at that dog seeing me, you know, and because she had these big eyes and, and it was just very, she was very human feeling. The dog I have now is like a complete animal. You know, you look in her eyes and you see nature on and on. You know, she just wants to be out there. And so she ran away this summer in Marfa and she ran onto ranch ranch land for four days. She was gone. And the whole town was like border control, animal control. I met everybody in town, you know, looking for this dog, ranchers. And like two days out, a rancher who didn't know that she was missing said, "Um, There's like a little, there's like an orange dog herding bulls out there. (laughs) It was like, What's going on? And she's like a, like a stray from the Bronx. And she's just like, you know, like if she sees a horse, she'll get under the horse and just start trembling. Like she feels awe for big animals. I was like, what is that? I mean, this dog just wants more and more. And so now I feel like I need ranch, a, na- a ranch and cattle for this dog. So she's like moving me on to another realm again, you know? So, I don't know. They, they, yeah, they expand your, your properties and desires. And, yeah.
0: Um, I was going to ask how Honey feels about Rosie
2: having her own book, but maybe you
0: just answered that question. How Honey feels about Rosie having her own book, but maybe you answered that Um, question. I mean, there
2: really is an answer. This is really sad because (laughs) before there was this like great, um, you know, people have given me like photographs of Rosie that not all of them are in the book, but there was one really good one that was sort of a close-up and sort of blurry. And before the book came out when I would like be doing some public events, it just seemed fun to have like, you know, I blew it up to like, you know, eight and a half by eleven or something, and I ta- I taped it to some book, and I would just it would just be like this thing I would show, and then it just was a cool object. So I kind of like, and I you know the joke I put it lo- like I kind of have this joke about dog art. You know, like often in the realm of where she might drink water or something, I'll put like, you know, lean some art that I, she might enjoy. So this was sort of dog level, like under her leashes as you come in the door, and she has dog friends in her na- in the neighborhood who do have access to the inside of the house like the dog door so gunner might come in and be around and they might you know and so it's like so I came in and it was just like it was like kind of a um, like a kind of a I don't know what do, you, what do you call it it was like it was like she had cried I was looking at it and I was like "There's tears it was like a shitty xerox of Rosie's face and it was like all like mournful and suddenly I realized the dogs had come in and pissed on her face <laughs> and, and then it kind of went this toxic green so it's just like, I still have it. It's so weird. I was like, what do I do with this? You know, it's kind of a dog miracle kind of insult thing. So I think that, yeah, I think there's some, it was like her friend helped her out. It was like, let's piss on that. Who is that dog we keep caring about, you know? Um. Oh, you. The, yes, this person here. First. Sorry, no, thank oh.
0: you. Um, you touched a little bit earlier on, uh, on the way that you sort of construct a version of, eileen in your poems and your prose but i just wondered if you could say a little bit about the two as different mediums media that you you know i your poetry and your prose and the way that you um use them as a sort of autobiographical kind of medium autobiographical in sort of quotes but the is diff- there a
2: difference for you in writing about yourself through the poems or writing about your lives through the poems or the prose? Right. I mean, I think in the poems you don't necessarily... Like, I've always felt like the com- poems are like a comic strip, you know? Like, I think a poem is like a, is like a horizontal comic strip, you know? And, and that made it possible when I first started to write to do it that way because I love comic strips and just the, just the, you know, the material and the balloon kind of, you know? And so it would just be like... Meh. And and not so I mean, not so much would I actually literally come in, but once in a while I would I remember writing a poem that I was very proud of in my twenties and it was like da 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 and the last line was like she weighs in at one twenty six, you know, and I thought I was like this <laughs> boxer or something. And every now and then I'll use me and like I have a poem, Eileen's Vision, and I like saw something on the you know, like um like on the bathtub cover, like in the you know in East Village we have bathtubs in the kitchen, and then you have the cover, and you know, and it was like I think I had like a vision, like I saw the Blessed Virgin and the cover of my, you know, and I wrote. But mostly I don't, I mean, like mostly I don't come into my poems literally, you know. Whereas I think that the fiction, I just seems like I just seem like an available character. Like it's sort of like if I have all these memories and all this material, why do I have to make somebody up? Why can't I just use the stuff that I have and not do the research? You know? <laughs>
4: um,
2: so I think, you know, and it's, it's like you can just take, and then and you, can, you can use the self and then leave the self further, I think, in, in prose. So I think in poetry, it's sort of like it's implied. It's always, I mean, it's weird though, because I think people do kind of um, propose somehow that, that the poems are autobiographical, autobiographical. And I don't think it's sort of like so many borrowed, stolen eyes that you get to use. And I think this, the notion that it's personal poetry means you're talking about yourself. And I mean, none of it do I necessarily, I don't even like calling my work autobiographical. I just think, you know, like friends of mine, like there's all these, um, there's like a bunch of Bay Area fiction writers that are banded together on the new narrative. And it's Kevin Killian and Dodie Bellamy. And then, you know, Kathy Acker's loosely part of that. And Dennis Cooper's loosely part of that. And I'm loosely part of that. But part of the thing was to use your own name and, and in fiction. And I think with one of the ideas, part of it was they were poets who wanted to still write about sex and not necessarily be theoretical. In the 80s, language poetry came in and it was all theory, poetry, and you're not supposed to be personal at all, no narrative and certainly no sex. And so it was just like there were these poets who who wanted and who were more involved with performance. And, and wanted to do all those things. And so they will, so we'll just go to prose. We'll just go to prose then. And they, you know, started writing these. But they always used their name and the idea was to um, make the work be continuous with the world. So the point, so it wasn't the work, the work is about me, is that I am, I am, you know, like, I'm just part of what's, everything that's happening and surrounding. And it just, it perhaps starts here, incidentally. Um. Yeah.
0: Hey, thanks for that. Um, You're I wanted to ask you about the idea of a muse. Um, I haven't read Afterglow, but certainly in Chelsea Girls, the the story is punctuated by all these women, and I guess I want you to talk a bit because the muse is very problematic anyway.
2: But muse, um, what was the last thing you said about muse?
0: It's quite problematic, but I was wondering if whether you see Rosie as a muse.
2: I, um, I mean, I kind of do, yeah. and and maybe there's a little bit of a feeling that she won't mind in the same way that, you know, a human female might, you know. Is that what you meant? Yeah, just kind of no,
0: discuss. No, the whole thing. I mean, discuss, like, well, when, yeah. I had,
2: when I had that experience of being in a TV show and I guess I was like the muse of Transparent, I thought that's so <laughs> feminizing and weird. You know, I think that there's that, you know, that one doesn't like being the, the love object of something or anything. but. Mm. I don't know, I mean, I think it seemed seemed important, but I mean, I feel like it seemed important to be a female who loves women, who wants to write about that world and that realm in a particular way, in a particular style, in a particular fashion. So you, I mean, like the danger of of people using the word. I never felt like any, I, I never felt like any of the women I wrote about were. Muses, you know? I felt like they were co conspirators or, you know, like, or, you know, people who would change my life and people who taught me how to have sex and, you know, just um, the, the animation. I mean, like, what made my life be real and vital? Like, I think sex is the great narrative and love is, is like what, I mean, poetry is just like a list in a way. It's just like this list, just an inventory. But when it becomes like devotion or lust or something, it just becomes this enhanced ecstatic list you know I I feel like love just makes the work become something you know I mean it's just like the dog the dog is the dog is like is almost like real estate in a way but is the dog is love too you know but I mean I feel like every time something or somebody enters your realm you just you you become something different like chemically you you change Um, so I mean it's just it seems to me it's like you've been given a great gift and then you turn it around and call them a muse. And it just, it seems so insulting and so kind of paltry compared to what the exchange was or is, you know? But also, I mean, like just in the history of literature, I think it just, it just behooves a female writer to write about love and lust, you know, in, in, in a different way, you know? So I feel like that has been part of my job.
0: Absolutely, yeah. yeah. Thank you.
2: Partly following on from um,
3: what you just said about uh, Rosie being fine with it, um, and also something you said a minute ago about uh, borrowed, stolen eyes, um, is there Borrowed, ever-
2: stolen eyes? That's so great. Said that, <laughs> Did uh, I? Two, like, two minutes ago, yeah. <laughs> oh, I was like... Yeah, I, I, I said, like, that's great. <laughs> I love that. I said that. <laughs> <laughs> Embarrassing. Um,
3: mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, Is there ever like, a hard line for you where you're like... Uh, you feel like you can't write something, that you want want to write something and you feel like you have to stop because it's not yours or you don't have permission or the right permission.
2: Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's just like, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's like if you know that somebody doesn't want this going public in some way, I mean, like I'll fictionalize it or just not even touch it, you know, and family, you know, but it's weird. It's like your family doesn't like you writing about them no matter what you write because you're just violating... That story that everybody was making and making differently, and then your account is going to be not the same one. But, um, like, you know, my mom just died in April, and I feel like I know there's just stuff that I never could write about that, that now I feel like is, you know, and, and it's not even necessarily literal. Literal. And it's not even that she read my work, but I know that everything's different now because she's not in the world, you know.
3: Yeah, is it, is it different when, when it's someone who's not there anymore? Um, yeah, how, well, obviously it is, but, but how?
2: how yeah. I don't you know like I'm not They're history in a way they're you know like they're not going to change anything and they're not I mean it's sort of like in the same way that like when somebody's gone like your mother's gone it's so it's so weird how she's everywhere you know I never realized how much I thought about my mother you know and so it's just I, I mean, yeah I, I can't even exactly you know so it's sort of like so it's there's just a difference that that they're like they're everywhere and no place, in, but there's no point of contact, there's just a million points of contact. You know. And I think that surely that changes how you approach something and even how you approach the world as subject matter. You know, It's sort of like, you know, it's sort of like you're born and you have these parents. I mean, I think people, obviously it's like people who were adopted do these searches, you know, because they just want to know who that person was. But we who know who those people were, you know, it, it have this other, burden and then and then they leave and then you feel like you're sort of standing on the diving board you know you're just your relationship to mortality seems so different you know because um, the people who made you don't exist maybe that's I don't know if that's about literature or life I can't I don't know I think I know the difference
0: ladies gentlemen people dogs poets puppets thank you so Uh much thank you for your questions Eileen you'll stick around a sign yeah Um, please give Eileen Miles a huge thank you. Thank you so, so so much. Thank you for joining us for this London Review Bookshop event. For more, visit our website at www.londonreviewbookshop.co.uk or search for the London Review Bookshop
4: on iTunes.